Okay. Okay. Um, someone just asked if we were going to actually get to Hebrews. We're, we're not. Uh, this isn't a conference on Hebrews. I, I mistitled it. <laughs> um, I will start with a quick story um, as we're getting... Oh, hold on. Yeah. If you're able slowly to make your way up, we're going to start. I'm going to pour some piping hot coffee from this very nice thermos. I'm not used to being treated this well. I think, may I stay? No. <laughs> um, mm. Well, um, I, I, I woke up, I'll just give you the, by way of preface, I woke up this morning at like 4, went to bed, you know, about 11.30 or so, and, um, and I thought, I kind of rethought how to approach Hebrews uh, in light of what we were doing in Exodus. And I had to cut, a, you know, material out because of the, um, it just, it, it, you, you can't do everything, you know, in, in, in the amount of time we have. And I think um, some might say, well, why didn't you just do Hebrews the whole time? <laughs> you know, that would have solved the problem. But you see, you, but, but you see, here's the point. We did Hebrews. You see? You see? We, we've seen the internal Old Covenant logic of Hebrews in its typical form. And the thing I want to impress on you is this. I, 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 let me use this as an illustration. I heard someone recently, I won't tell you where, I have traveled all over the place recently, so there's no way to guess um, where this could be. But, but, but this brother was in the pulpit, and he said that what Israel had under the Old Covenant was a picture of salvation, was a portrait of things to come, was a, a sign and a, a kind of external husk of what would come in Jesus. Now, I try so hard never to show any emotion at all when I'm listening to a sermon, you know, because you want to receive the Word of God. You don't want to be sitting there going, I don't like that. You want to receive the gospel, right? So I didn't try to make any faces, but can you, do, you, do you see why I was maybe grimacing a little inside when I heard that? What I want you to recognize is that what Moses received and what Israel received by God and his agency through Moses as a type of Christ was in substance exactly what we receive in Christ. This is what covenant theologians talk about when they say there is a unity to the covenant of grace. It's the same in substance. But what happens is that covenant of grace, and by the way, if you, those of you who are inclined to do this, Westminster Confession, chapter 20, section 1, talks about the difference between the old and new covenant as lesser and greater access to God by the power of the Spirit. So it's not like the Old Covenant is only condemnation, only external ceremonies, and, an, and a covenant of works. 
the new covenant is substance and vital reality and a covenant of grace. That, if you want to, if you want to put a category on that, that's a, historically a Lutheran view of sorts. Um, it's, a, it's also a radical Anabaptist view from the 16th century. What we're saying instead is that there's one covenant of grace that moves from lesser to greater, partial to fuller access to God, and the fullness comes in Christ, in His death, resurrection, and ascension. And so this is something that we all as Reformed, whether we hold to a, um, a, 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 what, whatever our confessional standard might be as Reformed, this is, this is something we all share. Did, yes, sir. Yes, sir. But you're wanting to say that they were saved by the virtue, efficacy, and benefits of the sacrifice of Christ that had not yet come. Yes. Here's the difference. Here's the best way to put it in my, this is a tough issue, but the best way to put it is every single believer from the Garden of Eden until the parousia of Christ is saved by grace through faith that unites to the Messiah. And that is the hill to die on. Uh, one of, of, of a few hills that you just got to die on. Here's the difference. Believers prior to the coming of Christ were saved by virtue of union to the promised Messiah through promises, types, and sacrifices that not only prefigured him, but communicated his benefits, his person and his benefits. So that Abraham rejoiced to see Christ's day, and Abraham was justified in the same Messiah that we are. What's the difference? He was promised, not yet ascended. So Pentecost is the dividing line. We're now united to Christ as what? Promised and ascended. Believers in the Old Covenant were united to the promised and to be ascended Messiah. And the, the mystery, if you're wondering, boy, how does that all happen? The, the, two, the two confessional statements that I like the most are Westminster Confession 8.6, Westminster Confession 7.5, and then also Westminster Confession chapter 20, section 1, which basically says this. Here's the key. By the supernatural and inscrutable power of the Holy Spirit, the virtue and benefits and efficacy of the promised Messiah were communicated to the elect in all ages from the fall until the coming of Jesus. Promises, types, and shadows not only prefigured him, but were the ordained sacramental means by which his presence was made known. And then those now on this side of Pentecost are united to the ascended Messiah by the power of the Spirit through the gospel as it is proclaimed. And so that's, that's the way to, uh, to think about that issue. And a Hebrews way of putting it, I love this, um, Hebrews 3.6, Moses was a servant in God's house. Christ is the Son over God's house. And you are that house if you hold fast to Christ. Do you see it?
How many households? One. Moses is a servant. Christ is the son. You are that house. So if you want to think about the, the unity of the covenants, I'm not going to lecture on this, but except for now, um, then, then use um, um, uh, Hebrews 3.6 to think of it this way. From the Garden of Eden until the consummation of the age, God is building progressively one covenantal household of old and new covenant believers alike. And Hebrews 11, 39, and 40 says that we will not be brought to perfection apart from them as we are united to one Messiah, as one covenant household. That's a really helpful, integrative way uh, to, to think about that relationship. And, um, and, and, it, and, it, and it makes our point about Moses as what? A servant? Christ as a son. Moses in the house, he's redeemed. Christ over the house, he's the redeemer. Oh, and by the way, that distinction I just made, if I was unclear in any way, if I made anyone in, in the least bit uncomfortable about Moses, always remember he's a redeemed servant who in the economy of God typifies the Messiah but he's not in any conceivable way, not even partially, the Redeemer himself. He is a servant in the house. Christ is the son over the house. And Christ is the Redeemer. Moses is the redeemed. But in Moses' case, he serves a unique, typical function. Does that make sense? Yeah, I don't want to... There's no way... If I didn't make clear that, I should probably be brought under discipline in the OPC. Because I would be denying, right? I would be, and I would take it. Um, I'd repent, Lord willing, but um, uh, I'd repent right away. But if, if you can't confuse the Redeemer and those he redeems. But the redeemed still have unique typical functions in the Old Testament because the Old Testament's not about the redeemed as much as it is about what? The Redeemer. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's the conference. No Hebrews. Um, Right? Okay, here we go. Now, where do we start? Well, there are so many different ways to start, and I've decided to try to make the presentation of Hebrews, and you can tell me how, how successful this is when, we, when we're finished, you know, at the end of the day. I want to try to parallel as closely as I can the themes in Hebrews to what we looked at with Moses, Right? So this is, a, I, I, this is something I kind of worked on just this morning to try to modify and put a few things together that I hope will serve you better. So when we talked about Moses as a type of Christ, we talked about him in Exodus 32, 30 and 32, doing what? Making or seeking to make atonement. The essence of the Melchizedekian high priest is what? That he does not offer sacrificial blood that is not his own. And so do you remember when I told you Moses differs from Christ? Well, here's what I wanted to start with. I want to start with, um, we, we've got Moses and now Christ in light of Hebrews 9, 20. 
through 28. And I just want to talk about that for a minute. This is, this is heightened typology part one. And what's the background for this? Well, we've already looked at it. Exodus 32, 30, and 32. Moses seeks to make intercession. Moses seeks to make atonement. Moses offers himself on behalf of Israel as a heightened type of Christ. Now, what lies on the surface of Hebrews 9, 25 through 28, I want us to look at. And I'll, I'll read that text. And this, the only reason I'm starting here is because of what we said with Moses, okay? There are so many other places we could start. But this, is, this, this, this will show you um, a lot of the uh, continuities here. Listen. Hebrews 9, I think I'll just start with 23, but I only want to focus for now on 25 through 27 um, and, and, and get this clear. Here it is, Hebrews 9, 23 and following. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own. For then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he has appeared once for all, at the end of the ages, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after having done that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Now, what I want to do is try to line up for you, just in, in, in overarching categories, three figures. Two are made explicit here, and one is implicit, but when we know our Old Testament, we know we've got to explain it. Let's just say there's Aaron as Levitical high priest. Then you've got, remember, Moses as the... Uh, Melchizedekian high priest as a type. I'm, I'm getting kind of... I've lost too much athleticism to do that, actually. I better be careful. Um, balance goes at about 44, I found. <laughs> yeah, when you, when you're, we, uh, it, and, and at 50, it's all gone, I think, I'm afraid. Um, yeah. The outer man continues to waste away. I'm quite, quite experiencing that. Um, but the inner man renewed day by day. Now, what, what, this, what, what you have in the Aaronic priesthood is you've got a fundamental distinction between priest and sacrifice. And Hebrews 9.25 makes that explicit. And I'll, I'll just give you the bare uh, statement, but look at what he says. 
the high priest under the Old Covenant, the Levitical Aaronic priesthood, Moses as a type of the Melchizedekian high priest, and then Christ as the um, eschatological high priest in the order of Melchizedek. When you're thinking about Aaron, the, priest, the Levitical high priesthood, the priest and sacrifice are distinct from one another. Look at the language there in 925. The high priest would, would enter the holy place year by year with blood not his own. Do you see that? On the one hand, the high priest would enter into the most holy place and he at every point remained distinct from the sacrifice he offered. So if you're thinking of Leviticus 16 and the Day of Atonement, one thing that you have to recognize is that the priest and the sacrifice remained at every point distinct from one another. So in Leviticus 16, what do you get? Among other things, just to boil down and focus, the high priest would take his hands, I think I said this last night, place his hands over the head of the scapegoat, and actually, the, the Hebrew, if, uh, this isn't hugely important, but he presses down. It's not just a laying on of hands. It's a pressuring down. Uh, uh, I think it's a symbol of the way the wrath of God is being pressed down upon him. Anyway, and the, and the weight of sin pressed down upon him. Anyway, the high priest confesses the sin of the whole congregation of Israel over the head of that scapegoat. And then the high priest stands where he is, and the scapegoat is taken away, symbolically bearing away the guilt of, of sin. The second goat, the high priest would slay, and 925 brings that into view. He would take blood not his own. It's, it's, um, it's foreign blood into the most holy place once a year and sprinkle that blood before the mercy seat and that doesn't deal with the guilt of sin. That's the scapegoat. It deals with the wrath of God against sin. Scapegoat, expiation, sin being taken away from the presence of God. Blood, propitiation, satisfying the wrath of God against sin. That's point one. Um, point two, notice, he entered the holy place year by year with blood that was not his own. And that points to that ongoing yearly annual repetition points to what? Points to the fact that what was being transacted does not have once for all unrepeatable efficacy built into it. It was a yearly prophetic token a yearly sign that was pointing beyond itself to Christ, even though Leviticus 1.4 says, by the blood of these goats and bulls, you do have atonement for sin. It's a, the, they became the means through which Christ and his benefits were being communicated to the people. And so you, you have that. Now, with, with Moses... What did we say was so different? Moses, uh, in, in, in Exodus 32 through 34, 
What do you find in terms of the difference there? Now think about this with me. With Moses, the priest is the sacrifice. Is he not? What does he say? If you don't go with these people, 33, 32, blot me out of the book that you've written. Now, he doesn't shed his blood, but what does he offer to do? In Voss's language, he offers himself vicariously in the place of the people he's representing. And how many times, catch this now, how many times did he do it? He did it one time. Do you see that difference? You see how clear that is? Now let me ask you this. Who's the heightened type of Christ there? Isn't it obvious? It just screams at you once you see it, doesn't it? It's like one of those things where you say, well, that's just, there's no way around that one. So, Jesus, now, which order of priesthood um, does Hebrews 6.20 say he has? He is a priest in the order of Melchizedek, not a priest according to the Aaronic or Levitical order. And so, Hebrews 9... 26 through 28 is going to help us now see the way that Moses was a type and Jesus Christ is the anti-type, the anti-typical fulfillment, the eternal, abiding, consummate high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. And what was Moses doing? Please, you, you, I know this is going to get more obvious because we're in the book of Hebrews, and Hebrews is just so direct about it. But what was Moses doing as he offered himself? He was offering himself so that God might hear, forgive, relent, and abide. Hear, forgive, relent, and abide through a what? through a one-time offering of the priest who is the sacrifice. So there on Mount Sinai, guess what you see? You're starting to see the, 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 the preview of the work of Christ as Melchizedekian high priest. So look at verses 25 and 26 with me. First, Jesus has offered himself, look at the text one more time in 925 and 26. Jesus has offered himself, according to 26, not repeatedly since the foundation of the world. So in 926, it is not repeatedly, but what? Once. He's offered himself once, Nine. 25. Not repeatedly since the foundation of the world, but he has appeared and offered himself once. Secondly, he has not repeatedly been offered, but he offered what? Himself, verse 25 into 26. He offered himself once for all. In the case of Christ, the priest 
in the strictest of all conceivable senses, the is of identity, the priest is the sacrifice. And he does it not repeatedly, but once. In this way, I want you to see, he stands in antithesis to both Aaron and the Levitical order on one side. He's, it's an antithetical. You see, the diff, you see how they're just lining up as antithetical. But what is he in relation to Moses? He is the perfecting of Moses, not the antithesis. Do you see that distinction? He's not the antithesis of Moses. He's the perfecting of Moses. Now, if you pushed me really hard and said, wait, what about his person? Well, he's the creator assumed flesh. There's an antithesis. But I'm talking about his function as a priest. What does he do? Moses offered himself once. Jesus offers himself once. Moses offers himself. The priest is the sacrifice. Jesus offers himself. The priest is the sacrifice. Where do the differences start to appear? There are two main ones, and let me just stipulate this up front. The most basic conceivable dis difference, and I'd love to do a conference on this one of these days. Well, no, not a whole conference. It'd be, a, it'd be pretty intense. But Jesus' person is divine. Remember that. Jesus' person is divine. That's the biggest difference between the two. His person is immutably divine, and he's assumed a true body and a reasonable soul into a hypostatic union. That's the big, 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 most basic fundamental difference than which none greater can be conceived. But with that being said, what is the difference with regard to the efficacy of their priesthoods? That's the, the thing I want you to see. The first one is this, that Christ has appeared, verse 26b, at the consummation of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And so 26b and following, consummation of the ages to put away sin by, I'm just going to abbreviate, self-sacrifice. And the two things that I want to try to explain is this phrase here, consummation of the ages and put away sin by a single offering of himself. Um, this does invoke his divine person, but it invokes the function of his divine person as a Melchizedekian high priest who has assumed a true human nature to himself. Now here's what I want you to appreciate. The language there um, in your ES, do you guys read mostly an ESV or an NAS? Or? Yeah, tell me, okay, ESV, very good. Um, look at the language. Then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world, but as it is, he has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. Now the term that's used there in the plural, um, the end of the ages, is almost identical to the language that's used in, 
in um, Matthew 28, 20. Jesus says, I am with you always, even to what? The end of the age. What I want you to appreciate is that the end of the age brings into view the consummate judgment of God that's reserved for the omega point of history. Jesus offered himself at, as a sacrifice at the consummation of the ages. The author of Hebrews is thinking dynamically of the transition from the first covenant, old covenant under Moses, to the transition into the new covenant in Christ. And what does he say that that transition brings into view? Now this is pretty intense, but it's beautiful and wonderful. It means that the work of Jesus brings into view the consummation of God's purposes for all of human history. Jesus' sacrifice has as its context the consummate, climactic expression of the judgment of God against sin. When your high priest, your mediator, your redeemer, offered himself, what provided the context for his death was the consummation or end of God's wrath being poured out at the end of the ages. And in Jesus' case, it was that transition from the provisional ages to the beginning of the end of the age. And that means this, that the eternal judgment that is being held in abeyance for the last day, when God will judge Satan, demons, and the reprobate with an unchanging and immutable righteous anger and wrath that will banish them to a lake that burns with fire and they will burn without being consumed. That judgment befell your Savior. If you think of the lake of fire as, as being held in abeyance up in heaven, do you know what, the, do you know what happened to Jesus? For all of the elect, it was poured out over him, poured out upon him. The cup of wrath was poured out, and its dregs were emptied on Christ at the end of the ages for you and for me, for all of his elect. That means, then, that... that the eternal judgment that is postponed for the end of the age, it intruded into time. If I had a bigger board, I would have the lake of fire over here, up here, and I would have an arrow coming down to the cross right here. And so here it comes. The, the lake of fire, the cup of wrath, is poured out upon your Savior once for all at the end of the ages as he bears away the wrath of God and the sin that you have committed. And the, the point that's made is that in doing that, 
and I, I want you to see this, and you, you've got you've to be thankful for this one. He put away sin for you and for me. That, and, and, and the beauty of it is amplified in verse 27. This will confirm it. As it's appointed for men to die once, and then comes what? Judgment. So also Christ. He appeared at the beginning of the age, verse 27 into 28, to do what? To bear the sins of many. Right? He bore the sin that you committed, the original sin of Adam's guilt imputed, the original sin of Adam's corruption inherited, and all of your actual sin. Christ bore it once for all to put away sin just as it is appointed for man to die once and then comes judgment. So likewise Christ appeared at the beginning of this age to bear the sins of many. And here's what you've got to get. Moses could not do that because Moses is a sinner himself. You don't, you can't have a human person mediate between you and God. Because every other human person is a sinner just like you. What do you need? You must have the divine person of the Son clothed in flesh as your sin-bearing substitute. But do you know what? When you've got him, you've got everything. Do you see it? Your, your judgment. Now, 2 Corinthians 5.10, you're going to give an account for to God at the judgment seat of Christ, and you're going to be rewarded for the sake of Christ for your imperfect but sincere good works. You're going to get rewarded for them. I think the reward, to be honest with you, is other people in Christ. That's what I think it is. I can't imagine it being anything else. You know, um, it, it will be fellowship in heaven with all the people you've served, which, which <laughs> is beautiful. But I'll tell you what, you won't ever ever face you will not face the tribunal of God's wrath against you and your sins people have said this this one gets me I try not to get wound up because if you get wound up in what I do you get wound up on everything so I try not to get too wound up about it but the idea of you standing before God and God showing you and everyone else all of the sins you've ever committed it's not going to happen you don't want to know why Put away sin once for all by the sacrifice of himself. So your judgment, the judgment that you deserve, is wholly past and wholly satisfied in Christ as your substitute and mediator. And, and the news, that's, that's that, that, that is what? One greater than Moses has come. Okay? Now, we're almost to a perfect stopping point. Um, here's what I want you to see. That is a means to an end. And, I, and when I was, I'll tell you this story and then we've got a break and we'll go to lunch. But when I was um, 
when I became a Christian at 19, um, the sermonator, David Brack, gave me a ton of books. One of the things that he gave me was a commentary on Hebrews by Philip Edgecombe Hughes. And um, Hughes' work on, on Hebrews is good. It's not as good as Voss's, but, you know, Voss's is, is, is in a unique category. And, um, but the, one of the things that I picked up on in, in that Hebrews commentary was this text. This is the one that jumped out, and I told my mom. I'd just been a Christian for about a year, and I said, Mom. <laughs> she was always kind of laughing because I was learning, you know, a bunch. I said, Mom, guess what? <laughs> and she said, what? I said, did you know, and of course she knew this, but I said, did you know that Jesus is, is, has taken away sin once for all by a single sacrifice of himself, and our judgment's holy past? And she went, yes, baby. I, I, I've known that for, for a long time, and that's why I took you to church your whole life, okay? And I, and I, but I was telling her, and, she's, and she said, and, but, but, but let me tell you, let me tell you, this is, this, this is the cliffhanger now. Did you know as glorious as what I just told you is? Did you know it's not the main point of the book of Hebrews? Oh, yeah. See, for the main point, you've got to come back after lunch. 